What's up, everybody? This is FTW with ModCon. I'm your host, ModCon, and joining me on this anonymous Smasher edition is Esports Bar Association member and attorney, Connor Richards. I'm back. And later on, we'll have freelance reporter Meg K on to talk double lifts retirement from League of Legends. But first, Super Smash Brothers. Picking up on our conversation from last week, much has developed following Nintendo's cease and desist towards The Big House Online. Because The Big House was using emulated versions of Melee, plus a netcode mod titled Slippy, Nintendo felt it was infringing on its IP and demanded the tournament to be halted. Since then, a Twitter user who goes by Anonymous Masher put out a post explaining all the ways in which Nintendo has actively worked to thwart the competitive Smash scene. The post claims that Nintendo, while having a jovial, outer-facing smile towards the Smash community, was actively hurting it behind the scenes. It prevented E-League from broadcasting its own Smash tournament. HTC was planning on running a tournament series but backed down after Twitch and Nintendo had something planned that never ultimately materialized. ESL also tried its own circuit, but Nintendo was unresponsive. Nintendo was willing to partner with ESL on Splatoon, however. It should be noted that DreamHack, ESL's sister organization, has run melee tournaments in the past. And in my own conversations with ESL leadership, they have confirmed to me that something was in the works, but ultimately nothing moved forward as Nintendo became unresponsive. MLG had hosted a melee event in 2015 and later on did a Smash 4 event, but it didn't move forward with future events as Nintendo was asking for a $50,000 licensing fee, double that of Street Fighter 4. Red Bull was in talks with Nintendo in the past, and in my conversations with Ben Nickel, former senior program manager at eSports at Red Bull, he said that the conversations never moved forward. Ghosting seems to be a common trend for Nintendo. Twitch was working on a circuit for Smash, according to Anonymous Smasher, and after three years of slow back and forth, according to him or her, an agreement was signed. But with the release of Ultimate, Nintendo backed down, saying it wanted to see if the community at large would gravitate towards the new game. Nintendo has made similar comments to me when talking about Ultimate. According to Anonymous Masher and the tournament organizers he or she has spoken with, there seems to be a pattern from Nintendo. It feigns support of the community when not really supporting it, instead only using it for influence. Its sponsoring of tournaments is not financial, a claim which I believe is false in speaking to other TOs throughout the years. Regardless, Nintendo will use tournaments to promote what it wants to promote. If it attaches its name to an event, it won't aid on the Smash side of things or any other financial matters, according to Anonymous Smasher, but will then provide infrastructure for Splatoon and ARMS tournaments if that is the latest game it's trying to push. Last episode, I ended on asking Connor what he thought he would recommend for the Smash community do if he were its theoretical legal counsel. You recommended pushing a strong PR strategy to put pressure on Nintendo to reverse its decision as this worked back in 2013 with the Evo situation. With the recent information that's come out, it seems that strategy might not be tenable. So given all of this, what is your new piece of legal advice? Yeah, so like you said, this is not a strategy that um, is going to work the same way. Um, One of the things that I mentioned is that the Smash community should present a really strong sales pitch to Nintendo about the economic opportunity that is... Uh, available if you were to take advantage of the competitive community. Clearly, as shown by all these different reports and from uh, your and my conversations with different uh, people in leadership in the Smash community, this is a sales pitch that's been made for the better part of a decade. And the reality of it is Nintendo has established a pattern here of, uh, like you said, feigning interest 
uh, always kind of leading people to believe that they that just around the corner there was a larger deal, a circuit, a league to make happen that would be profitable both for Nintendo and the Smash community, and it just never materialized. And ultimately, it just leaves you with the question of whether Nintendo is ever going to be interested in making this materialize or whether they're just taking advantage of the Smash community. Um, which means that your, your option of trying to create this productive sales pitch and create this beneficial symbiotic relationship is effectively dying if not dead already. Um, instead, that means that you, from the Smash community standpoint, have to play defense. Uh, one of the, the figureheads in the Melee community, Crimson Blur, he's been a, a TO and a commentator in a couple different leadership roles. Um, he did a video on this free Melee stuff, and one of the points that he made was, um, for the long time, the goal was to get Nintendo partnerships and sponsorships. But increasingly, the sentiment among TOs is that those days are over, and the goal of free Melee is just to get Nintendo to leave us alone. That means when you plan big events, you do everything that you can to support them. And if Nintendo decides to step in like they did in the Big House situation, you make a large ruckus, you create this negative PR, you create this grassroots movement uh, in order to shut down the negative actions that Nintendo is taking. Um, and that, I think, is a strategy that you can still employ here. Uh, notably, this, is, this Big House situation is actually the first time since 2013 that a Smash tournament has received a cease and desist from Nintendo. That doesn't mean that Nintendo hasn't had issues with the Smash community since 2013. Um, one of the things that's been discussed during this, this free Melee movement is Project M. Uh, Project Melee, which is a, a basically a mod pack that changed Super Smash Bros. Brawl to incorporate some Melee mechanics. And Nintendo really, really didn't like Project M, but uh, because of this potential for negative PR... They had to use kind of uh, more subversive means in order to get Project M uh, deplatformed and try to take it down. It, you know, I, I see the sentiment online is kind of, you know, there's nothing else to lose at this point. Do you Would you recommend going forward with tournaments that either Nintendo has partnered with the past or hasn't partnered with and essentially seeing what Nintendo will do and what that whether that be anything beyond a cease and desist letter? It's hard for me, uh, especially as an attorney, to ever recommend just daring someone to sue you, uh, which is effectively what you would be doing. But uh, it does depend a lot on the different tournament organizers to think about, to think here about what you're actually risking. Because for MLG, for example, uh, Major League Gaming is they had a uh, Smash tournaments for a long time, um, and they even had a circuit briefly, and they basically said we haven't been able to secure different licensing deals and uh, they were reportedly denied rights to stream and stuff like that and they basically said well like we have we have this large esports organization we have too much to lose and so we can't keep running smash events and that's that's been a sentiment that's been echoed by some larger esports companies but i mean if you're a grassroots smash scene that's you know say you're a smash club at a college um and you're trying to host some kind of a, a regional or a national tournament and you get some kind of a C&D from Nintendo, you maybe aren't risking as much. So maybe that's something that you consider and something that you prepare for how you're going you're, you're gonna to deal with the fallout. So it may not be something you'd recommend for an MLG. Well, I, not that I'm saying you'd recommend uh, you try to force a company to sue you, but it's definitely, you could see why it isn't tenable for an MLG, but maybe a tournament series such as, 
the big house or apex where they kind of only just do this one thing, which is smash tournaments. Yeah. So there, there it's, it's a lot more tenable of an idea. Um, like Blur was was mentioning, the the goalposts here have shifted in terms of what the the Smash community actually wants to accomplish. Before it was, we want Smash to be the size of League of Legends or Dota or CS:GO. We want this to be a viable career path where people can make a lot of money. It can be uh, on the forefront of people's minds. You can watch Smash tournaments on ESPN, all that kind of stuff. And I think now with the amount of support or lack of support that Nintendo has demonstrated, I think instead uh, the goal has turned to just consistent grassroots sustainability in terms of just like this is a hobby that people can consistently enjoy without without interference. You know, I, I don't know if you followed the situation with the YouTube channel H3H2 Productions and kind of the fallout of free use that happened when uh, they made a commentary video on one of, on some other YouTuber that, didn't necessarily like them and this whole lawsuit uh you know it it was this kind of call to arms by the internet community saying that you know we have to essentially stand up for free use and h3hc took on this lawsuit and you know they had about two hundred thousand three hundred they had a couple hundred thousand dollars donated to them in uh, to help with legal fees and they had um a few lawyers on i i including um what the video game attorney on twitter and even then, you know, if you listen to their commentary after all of it was done, they said that it was highly, highly stressful that the amount that the community donated ended up not even being enough just because it was so expensive. But ultimately, you know, they won the lawsuit and they ended up, you know, setting a bit of legal precedent. So let's assume that, you know, a big house or whatever tournament series does decide to move forward. Nintendo does submit legal action. And let's say the community does say, OK, we're, we're going to support this tournament series and we're going to just start this huge donation drive to try to fight back. I mean, what are some of the implications that people might not be considering with this strategy? Um, the implications that people might be, not be considering is the fact that you have uh, a lot of layered copyright issues here. So one, like we mentioned briefly last time, is just the, the broad broadcast rights that Nintendo possesses over their intellectual property, which most legal scholars agree are nearly absolute, which means that if you're playing a Nintendo game, for almost any reason, they can decide that you don't get to publicly broadcast it. Um, so that's that's one of the issues that you're really fighting against. Now, when you're talking about kind of the subversion or changing of IP, just the ability for Slippy to exist even outside of a, of a broadcast environment or people to play Smash tournaments without broadcasting them, that's a different legal issue. You're talking about... Um, potentially fair use. You're talking about what we talked about last time a little bit in terms of like how exactly you're changing the IP. What form does that look like? Um, one of the other things that Nintendo's demonstrated they don't like is something called UCF, which stands for Universal Controller Fix, um, which is just like basically a, a memory card that gets plugged into a GameCube that changes the way that Melee works a little bit, which makes some of the advanced mechanics a little bit more accessible. Um, that's something that like legally could be an issue depending on how courts interpret exactly the way um, that it's that it that it operates. And so the, the question is uh, twofold. One, how big of a fight are you prepared for? Because you're you're suing one of the biggest video game companies in the world. You're talking about um, a company that operates in a large number of different countries. So you have all these kind of jurisdictional issues not just across the U.S., but across Europe, across Asia. 
Um, and then the second thing is what, what exact issue are you fighting for? Do you want to try to claim that streaming a game that you commercially purchased should be a right and try to make that kind of an argument? Do you want to try to lobby for legislation to clarify this, given that the, the DMCA Act, you know, hasn't been doesn't really doesn't directly speak to this issue and, and hasn't been revised in some time with this in mind? Um, so all of these are, are kind of different battles with with varying analyses that attach to them as far as, you know, what exactly that you can accomplish. Um, and I mean, either way, I mean, one of the questions you asked me last week was, can you put any kind of a ballpark estimate on trying to sue Nintendo and how, how costly that would be? And I mean, I think the H3H3 issue that you mentioned is illustrative here. I mean, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, if not millions, depending on, you know, where all you're fighting, what lawyers you're hiring, how big of a firm, all that kind of stuff. And so this, as far as crowdfunding, this kind of an action is, is going to be a colossal undertaking if that's the direction that people decide they want to go. You mentioned something interesting in terms of legislation. Do you think, I mean, there are a few congresspersons that are more sympathetic to maybe the gaming community. Do you think an appeal could be made to them to try to push a bill through the house and the Senate that could maybe make it so that, Hey, if you like a, a bill that says, if you legally purchase a video game specifically, you are allowed to stream it, you know, however, which way you like something, something like that. Do you think that's a potential strategy? I actually think that's the strategy long-term. I think long-term when you're talking about the way that this copyright legislation and intellectual property legislation more broadly, cause you, you know, you have some trademark issues and stuff like that. The way that it's written, broadly speaking, the only way that this market, uh, e I'm talking here about streaming broadly, not even just esports. The only way that I think that is sustainable is if you are able to push through legislation that speaks more directly to this issue and gives judges more of a concrete legal framework to actually work with. Because I think uh, if you're if you're going to pop up with all these lawsuits in different places against different game developers with with slightly varying issues, you're going to get a lot of variance in decisions both because, like you mentioned last week, I mean, a lot of these judges are uh, older folks who don't really understand necessarily how all these different tech issues uh, kind of interlock with one another. Um, and so you're going to get a lot of inconsistency there. And so you need that kind of long-term sustainable solution. Now, as, if you ask me, you know, what specific Congress people you go to, do we have any legislation out there that's already drafted that we should be supporting? I don't think, I haven't been able to find anything like that that's out there yet. So that's... Um, in my mind, kind of the biggest open issue for, you know, how to draft this stuff and who to contact to try to get lobby to get it through. And then obviously the the political clout that you would need to actually get that through. I mean, it, to me, it seems that probably the most um, logical person to go to would be AOC. I mean, she's already streaming on Twitch. She just did a stream yesterday, raised $200,000 for, for charity. Uh, either her or Ilhan Omar, the, uh, both of which have, you know, done stuff on Twitch. And it could be as simple as, you know, setting up a meeting with their liaisons at their offices to try to figure out if something could be done. Definitely, definitely. And then also uh, getting the right people in the mix to try to figure out how to draft this stuff. Because like you said, I think a AOC, Ilhan Omar, the, the rest of the squad, I mean, I think those those kind of groups and caucuses, I think would be really receptive to these kind of ideas. That doesn't necessarily mean that they know the inner workings of copyright law. So you would also need to um, you know, rope in informed people who could help you draft this legislation in a way that you're not going to have, you know, secondary harm or secondary issues created by 
that and then yeah i think you would you would need to figure out channels to get in communication with them and figure out you know your political allegiances and stuff that would actually be able so that you could get this passed yeah i'm trying to think like the lobbying organization that i i feel i would go to in this situation would be the electronic frontier foundation yeah i and i think i'm sure this is an issue that's on their radar um i would be i'm not all that familiar with their lobbying history but I would be shocked if this has this if this wasn't an issue that they've they've considered and and have some preliminary kind of actions that they've taken on it. Yeah, yeah. So if the legislative front is the way, maybe the Smash community or even like the larger stream community should try to rally around. What bits of wording should they be looking for in this p- potential piece of legislation? Uh, so what you want is generally you want. Um, default rules as far as interpretations of terms of service and end user license agreements such that the natural reading of those kind of things preserves your right to stream something that you've commercially bought. You're never going to get legislation to back piracy. So if, if you're talking about trying to stream some game that you, you got for free through some you know, random website on the internet, that's probably not going to happen. What you want is to, to be able to commercially purchase the game and be able to stream it. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, one of the things that's been mentioned by a few legal scholars, um, our mutual friend Michael Aaron mentioned it, for example, is the ability to purchase something called like a compulsory license, which is something that's available in the music industry, which basically means that if you want to host an event um, with you know a number of people and it's not particularly feasible for you to police whether or not all of these people have commercially purchased the game and all that kind of stuff, you have the ability to go through a an open channel to purchase a license for the game without the publisher having too much control over what that license actually looks like and then obviously pay a fee so that the, the publisher is still making profit on their IP. But that allows you to go forward with an event that you want to put on without worrying about getting a and d from Nintendo. Wow. I mean, this just opens up like a huge kind of other can of worms that I hadn't considered until we did this episode yeah but you know i guess before we close out the show i want to ask because you know you've been following this heavily i've been following this heavily apparently nintendo is also ha- has also been messing with the arms competitive community which i didn't even know uh that, that was something that they were doing based on kind of all your readings all your findings do you have any other like final key takeaways something that you would want to tell the smash community so the big the big thing that you should realize here is that Nintendo wants the Smash community to exist in some capacity. What they don't want is for it to define IP. I think one of the huge takeaways here is for the fact that all of these events have been offered, organized, and all of the all that these event organizers have asked from Nintendo is for Nintendo's sign off. They haven't even necessarily asked for financial contribution, for infrastructure for any of that which means that Nintendo doesn't just see this as an economic neutral on a large scale. For some reason, they view a competitive community as an economic negative to their brand. That said, if you look at, for example, the Nintendo Switch reveal trailer, one of the, one of the last things that they leave you with in that reveal trailer is a team with matching jerseys walking through a filled stadium uh, to play Splatoon. And so what that means is they, they want this com- competitive community to exist in some, in some form for marketing reasons. And so what, it, what this means ultimately, like the takeaway here, is if you're trying to organize a competitive community, you can do that. You should push for it. You should create a grassroots movement to protect yourself. 
You should support a, any any kind of event that runs the way that you want it to. But you shouldn't rely on Nintendo, and you should always be playing defense, which is an unfortunate takeaway to have to uh, to come away from. But that's the reality of the situation, unfortunately. And with that, Connor, thank you so much for jumping on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And now I'm joined by Meg K. Last week, TSM's Yiliang Doublelift Peng announced his retirement from Professional League of Legends after nine years. Peng, a prolific player in the NALCS, has had a storied career backdropped by massive success, controversy, and personal tragedy. The AD carry has a few accolades under his belt. He's the first player to reach 500 kills, as a five-time LCS All-Star, was LCS's most valuable player in 2018 summer, and LCS's finals MVP in spring 2019. He also holds the record for most LCS titles at 8. So Meg, where does Doublelift's retirement fit into the larger League of Legends professional story? While he's no Michael Jordan-like figure in Faker, he does fit somewhere in the pantheon of League of Legends greats. Doublelift is a very, very interesting figure because obviously there is a reputation around, around North American League of Legends that it's kind of... Domestic success is, there are a couple of players who achieved really, really great domestic success, but then maybe weren't able to translate that internationally. So I think when you're looking at a player like Doublelift, you have to think a lot more about what they have brought to the sport holistically, as opposed to just purely in terms of achievement, which not negating Doublelift's achievements, I think he's done some amazing things in North America. But I think Doublelift's attitude and the way he created a brand for himself is something that's quite unique, specifically in League of Legends esports, but more specifically in esports as a whole. And I think that kind of brand value and that like personality, that character has brought something really, really special to League of Legends, which I don't know if we will see replicated for, I think, quite a while. You say something special. I mean, for people who don't follow League of Legends at all, I mean, how would you describe that? Um, It's the confidence bordering on arrogance but that is backed up by at least domestic performance. It's that kind of thing of this guy who is so assured and like self-confident that he is better than all of the people, like the classic catchphrase, everybody else is trash. That kind of confidence and that personality is not something we see a lot of in League of Legends. It's a lot more kind of, not respectful, but shy, I would say, in terms of player personalities. But I think he really marked a shift away from this kind of shy, quiet personality into something that's a lot more kind of social media or stage ready if that makes sense yeah and you know as you mentioned he hasn't you know walked away with a world championship title so is some of that bluster really justifiable um that's a very good question um i think it's very easy to downplay his success because it's only in his region or whatever. But there are actually very few players who can say that they have performed to an incredibly high level on the international stage. And it tends to be we see these same kind of faces making it to the real upper echelons of performance year in, year out. That's starting to change now, but that's only really been a thing within the past two years. So I think, yes, his international performances haven't been too great. I will be the first to admit that. But I also think you can't negate the success that he's found in North America and the consistency with which he's been to Worlds. He may not have done the best when he was there, but he has been an incredibly consistent attendee of the World Championship. A player like Doublelift, somebody who has all these accolades in North America, I mean, to a player like him, how important was a World Championship? Was it something that, you know, he was pursuing 
with all of his energy and effort? It's very hard to say. Um, Doublelift is not a person who has spoken a huge amount about international success. And I think North America as a region is not a region that talks about international success just because it has been so unachievable and the climate amongst North American fans is that, oh, that's just, that's not for us. Like, that we'll just never achieve anything at Worlds, we'll just keep doing fine, in like, regionally, and then we'll go to Worlds, we'll flop. We expect it. Like, there'll be this massive conversation about, oh, what needs to change in the North American infrastructure, and then nothing will change, and we'll just keep going the way that we were. I think for a player like him, it's actually very difficult to have these world championship aspirations and to be public about these world championship aspirations because there just isn't the history either for him or for North America to back up the possibility of those ambitions being realized so I think he probably any player wants to win right they wouldn't be playing if they didn't but I think he probably did have ambitions for kind of world renown but unfortunately that's just not how things ended up folding out for him definitely one of the most shocking moments in double lift's career was the murder of his mother by his brother in 2018, and it definitely shocked the entire community. What was interesting about it was Doublelift himself didn't take a break from League of Legends to go deal with this. He continued competing because it was, if I remember correctly, it was like right at the cusp of um, an LCS championship. I mean, what what does that say about Doublelift as a player? Or maybe what does that say about his relationship with his family? I mean, this is a very difficult one because obviously it is very public knowledge that Doublelift started his career um, being kicked out of his house by his parents because they did not want him to pursue League of Legends as an esport. And he kind of couch surfed for a little bit until he found somewhere that he could live. And that was how his career began. So it's obvious that his relationship with his parents is very fraught. But I also think people's ways of coping with grief are very unique and it's quite hard to comment on how another person handles a tragedy like that. But I think it's just a case of processing things in your own way. And I think it's incredibly admirable what he did. I think going to play even after such a huge, awful tragedy is very, very admirable. And I think that was his way of processing it. Like to go and to win was kind of his way of being able to deal with the emotions that he was feeling. Obviously, I wasn't inside the guy's head. I can't comment on it to that much depth. But if I had been in his shoes, that is how I would have explained that decision to myself. And he's 27 years old now. So he's retiring. I mean, you know, compared to other sports athletes, uh, very, very young. I mean, where does Doublelift go from here? Does he become a coach? Does he become a commentator? Does he become a streamer? Um, Does he go back into the regular workforce? From what I understand, he does not have a college education. So... I'm assuming that going into the workforce would be fairly difficult. Obviously, there are jobs that can be had without a college education, but he would be taking quite a significant pay cut from what he'd been receiving as a player. I think in terms of just his personality, I wouldn't say he is he would get on well on an official Riot broadcast. I think he's too blunt. Like you have to you can't just say, "Oh, everyone's trash." As a commentator, you have to kind of provide nuance, and I'm not sure if nuance is really his speciality. But he's had very successful streams in the past. He took a break from competing. I can't remember exactly which year it was. And just focused on content creation. And he did really, really well. So I think possibly just looking at a purely content creation or like something like I Will Dominate is doing now. Something like that avenue. I think that would be a very 
easy path for him to take should he choose to look for that route after retiring. Yeah, and he's also dating somebody rather prolific in League of Legends, correct? Uh, yes, he is. He is dating, uh, I believe it's TSM's chair of directors, or chair of directors, the head of the board of directors. I can't remember her exact title, mm. but Lena Zhu, she's a very prominent figure in TSM. Is it possible that he just goes into team management working alongside her? Um, it's hard to say. I think um, management is definitely not for everyone. And I, re- I don't think that the skill set of a pro player lends itself to moving into a managerial role. And I think to he would not get the job just because he was with Lena, I don't think. I think TSM as a brand values its infrastructure too much to allow something like that kind of nepotism to go on he could definitely look into that but i also don't think it would particularly suit his or any pro player's skill set and then last question while he has this tremendous following here in north america where do you think he'll ultimately land in the global world stage in terms of how players talk about him Double Lift is incredibly famous. I think that's undeniable. I think along with people like Faker and Reckless, maybe people like Perks and Caps now, or Uzi maybe, he's definitely among the biggest names in the esport. I think that's undeniable. I don't think he will ever achieve the kind of Uzi or Faker status just because he does not have the performance to back it up. So he will definitely go down in esports history not necessarily for his performance or his skill but for the the personality that he brought to the league and to competition and for how outspoken he was and how kind of like massive of a fan following he's gained he has fans all over the world he tweeted something a couple of weeks ago that was like a translated response from a really really dedicated chinese fan who had been who had posted something about him on Weibo, the Chinese social networking service, and yeah, I think Doublelift will definitely go down in history, if not for his performance, for the sheer kind of level of fandom that he's created around the world. And with that, thank you so much for jumping on, Meg. You're welcome. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan. If you like the show, please rate, subscribe, and share. Full transcripts of the show, as well as links to our Patreon, can be found at ftwmod.com. To follow Connor and keep up to date on esports and law, follow him at Exhibit at Law. That's X-Z-I-B-I-T at Law. To follow Meg and all the work she's been up to, you can find her at underscore Megito. To follow me and my writing over at the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere, find me at Imad on Twitter. And Ron Lyons is our audio producer. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.